0: Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. New developments in ophthalmology often translate to positive impacts on patients. In some cases, these advances can aid in changing patients' lives. Today, I speak to Dr. Ken Beckman about his contributions to innovations taking place in the cornea space, Ken is in practice at Comprehensive Eye Care of Central Ohio and is also a clinical assistant professor at The Ohio State University. He tells us about his involvement with the development of corneal crosslinking and with clinical trials with Avedro. Listen as Ken gets down to the specifics of the current conversation surrounding corneal crosslinking and the different challenges the treatment presents, coming up on Off the Grid.
1: Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast produced by Bryn Communications and supported by advertising from Alcon. For a full listing of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to itube.net forward slash podcasts. That's itube, E-Y-E-T-U-B-E
0: dot Today on Off the Grid, I'm lucky to be joined by Dr. Ken Beckman. Ken is in practice at Comprehensive Eye Care of Central Ohio and is also a clinical assistant professor at The Ohio State University. Ken, I'm excited to have the chance to talk with you about some of the innovations taking place in the cornea, as well as your contributions you've made to this space. With that, welcome. Okay, first I want to thank you for having me and for the kind introduction from a Michigan man. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, you got it, Ken. So uh, let's, let's just dive right in. Uh, you've been very active with the development of coronal crosslinking, so I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about where that treatment
1: stands today. Well, first I'll tell you about my involvement. I first became involved in crosslinking in about five years ago. I think it was 2013. Uh, I was involved in two of the Avedro, uh clinical trials. The first one was through ACOS, and that was an accelerated treatment trial. And uh, the second one, and that I'm sorry, the first one was an accelerated treatment trial using three different uh, energy levels and three different durations of treatment. And there was another one I did around the same time that was just a placebo-controlled um, accelerated treatment trial. So that was in two, in 2013. Then the the procedure became approved, I believe, in 2016. So we've been doing this for you know for about five years. Uh, since that time, I've actually been involved in three more clinical trials with the vidro. I had um, an investigator-initiated trial uh, of epi-on crosslinking, which all the patients have been treated. We're just completing their final visits, so this should be done in the next few months. I'm on one of their phase four epi-off ectasia trials. And I'm also just starting, we have a brand new Epion trial that Avidro's is running, and we were one of the first sites to enroll any patients, and we just started treating those. So I've been involved in CrossLink for about five years. I've involved in now five clinical trials, and we've treated, I'm not, I can't even tell you how many hundreds of patients, I couldn't count them. That's fantastic. Um, I was wondering if you could share
0: with us a little bit about the current uh, conversations surrounding the different uh, corneal crosslinking
1: approaches. You know, like EpiOn versus EpiOff. Where do things stand? Well, first, to explain a little bit, little bit about the treatment in general, um, corneal crosslinking involves treating the cornea with with riboflavin, which is a vitamin that we all have in our diets. It gets absorbed into the cornea. It's put. It's treated as a drop form, and it gets absorbed in the cornea. Then the cornea is treated with ultraviolet light. The combination of the ultraviolet light with oxygen causes this reaction within the cornea that has riboflavin in it to form bonds or crosslinks. And the goal is to stiffen the cornea, uh, to sort of lock it in place. It's a similar process to vulcanizing rubber like you hear about with a tire. So it makes it firm. So um, that's goal number one, to stop it from progressing. Goal number two is that it may actually flatten and become more regular and give patients a better quality of vision. So it's not like, you you really have to explain to patients, this is not LASIK surgery where the next day they're going to wake up and aha, their vision's great. What we're trying to do is number one, not let them get worse. And number two, hopefully it'll start to flatten. So with epi-on and epi-off, epi-off or the removal of the epithelium is what's been approved. Vidro got this approved two years ago. And what that involves is removing the corneal epithelium, then giving the riboflavin drops, and then the ultraviolet light. The, what we know about it is it works really well. In their trials, there was obviously a significant improvement in these patients relative to SIBO or control arm, and it works. The negatives are that you're creating an epithelial defect. What does that mean? It means that there's going to be discomfort or even pain for the first several days or up to a week. The patient needs a bandage contact lens. They're at risk for infection, so they're on antibiotics. They're also at risk for scarring and haziness to the cornea. And it's a slower rehabilitation, even when the epithelium heals. As you know, when you have a corneal abrasion, it may not heal so regularly right away. So these are obviously things that are are concerning. The advantage, the theoretic advantage if you could get to Epion would be not removing the epithelium, obviously. So you don't have nearly the risk of the pain and irritation. You have much less risk of infection because the epithelium is intact, a much quicker recovery because they don't have to wait for the epithelium to heal. And theoretically, hopefully less scarring and haze, which will be hopefully proven as the as the trials go along. So theoretically, if epion is as effective as epi-off, there would really be no reason to ever remove the epithelium. The concerns though of why you would want to remove the epithelium is the epithelium does several things. Number one, it may be a barrier to the riboflavin penetrating. So therefore, you may not get enough concentration of riboflavin in the cornea. Number two, the epithelium, which will have soaked up riboflavin, may absorb some of the ultraviolet light as it's shined on the cornea. So it may not get in, the light may not penetrate as well into the stroma to to get the response. And number three, Oxygen may not be available to the to tissues because of the barrier of the, of the epithelium. So these are the hurdles that, are, that, are go, that we have to face. There are a number of trials that have been going on. Um, there's other companies that have started looking into ion. They have a unique formulation of their riboflavin, and they may or may not have uh, techniques as far as uh, allowing the riboflavin to penetrate, and they've shown good results. The Avidro trial, which I'm on, what they're doing is a couple things. They've changed the concentration and the formulation of the riboflavin. So it penetrates the epithelium better. That's number one. Number two, we're providing supplemental oxygen blown onto the cornea during, during the procedure. So theoretically, you have more oxygen exposure to the eye. It's also a pulsed treatment. The light is pulsed rather than continuous. So it sort of gives the cornea a break in between pulses to let the oxygen um, recollect, so to speak. So theoretically, if, if this works, there would be no reason that I can think of that you would prefer to do
0: epi-off. So Ken, it seems that epi-on versus epi-off is sort of like the difference between LASIK and PRK. You know, they both work great, but with PRK, there's more discomfort, more wound healing. Whereas with LASIK, we're achieving great results with much less
1: downtime. It is, except even more so because LASIK itself had its own inherent risks and complications because you're creating a flap. In this case, so you could, you could argue that there's operative risks that make the LASIK technically more difficult than PRK, so in the moment, it's, it's even higher risk. Uh, in this case, surgically or procedural wise it's not any, any more difficult, but the other part is definitely true from a, from a recovery and comfort standpoint. So if the efficacy of the two
0: approaches is similar, then Epion may be more preferable given the increased patient comfort, faster
1: recovery. Well, so far, it seems like it does very well. The Epioff definitely works. I've done it several ways. Like I said, when I did it in the clinical trials a few years ago, it was the accelerated form. So it was more energy over a shorter period of time. That's not the format that was improved. The approved format is the Dresden protocol that we're all more familiar with, and it's 30 minutes of light and 30 minutes, I mean, 30 minutes of drops followed by another 30 minutes of the light. And um, that seems to work very, very well. In my experience with the ones I've done with Epion, in in my investigator-initiated trial, they've also done very, very well. I've had some patients with dramatic improvement. One thing that I do notice, though, is significantly faster recovery I usually – I give them a contact lens, and I take it off the next day, and usually the epithelium is totally normal. There may be a little bit of SPK, but for the most part, visually, they're the same as they were pre-op the next day, and usually by that – the evening of the procedure, by that evening, they feel pretty much normal, whereas when I do an epi off, they're quite uncomfortable for the first day or two, and it may take – I usually end up leaving the contact lens in for about a week before – for the epithelium sealed. From a standpoint of scarring, haze, and infection, I haven't seen any of that with the EpiOn patients, but I did have a number of patients who had either an infection or scarring on the cornea um, and haziness with the EpiOff. They all did fine. I didn't, I didn't see any that limited their um, acuity afterwards, but you do see that. So, so yeah, if the results end up being the same, it's just it's a much better procedure. And now how does topo-guided PRK fit into the equation? Well, I, I have not done any. I do think it's definitely an area of opportunity from what I've seen. Um, I don't have any personal experience. I think it's really exciting, the prospect of being able to stabilize the cornea and at the same time reshape it to get rid of some of the, you know, obviously the refractive error and the aberrations. And I do think there's a future there. I just don't have any experience with doing it. I know Vidro has been working on one procedure called LASIK Extra, and what that involves is... At the time of LASIK, creating a flap, doing the LASIK procedure, then putting riboflavin on and closing the flap and doing cross-linking in the moment. But those are, as far as I believe, those are not done on cones. Those are done on patients who may be at higher risk or maybe not. I don't have the specifics on that, but to to allow them to have stability, I think that's an interesting one. They are also looking into a procedure now that's called Pixel, which is kind of like PRK, I guess. It's Modifying the shape of the cornea by cross-linking to correct small refractive errors. And it can be done for near or far, depending on what part of the cornea you would treat. You could have a cor- the center part of the cornea shielded and have like a ring of exposed area to make the cornea steeper to theoretically help with near. Or you can treat the center to get flattening to correct uh, mild myopia. And again, no, I'm not, I have not been involved with those clinical trials as well, but I think there's a lot of opportunities with that, and it would be nice to, uh, to fine-tune small refractive errors with cross-linking. So it sounds like Pixel may provide some pretty interesting opportunities in the future. Oh, absolutely. And just taking patients who underwent cross-linking, cones that were treated, and they've stabilized over the years, it makes me wonder... You know how well they will do with prk after the cross-linking not as necessarily as a simultaneous treatment like we talked about earlier so there's so many options for how these are going to be worked together over the years um i guess the research will show us
0: so switching gears a bit i wanted to talk with you about the role of optometrists and general ophthalmologists in referring patients for crosslinking. so when do you consider it an appropriate time to send a keratoconic patient to a coronary specialist to be considered for cross-linking
1: okay Yes. When when the procedure first, a lot of the gatekeepers, the optometrists and general ophthalmologists who are seeing these cones were used to their old pattern. They'd see a kid at 16 years old and he's 20-20 and they'd watch him. And then he's 18 years old and he's 20-20 minus or 20-25 and maybe they fit him in a contact. And before you know it, he's 25 and now he's 20-30 in glasses or 20-40 and that's as good as you can get him. But he still corrects the 20-20 in contacts. And they waited until all of a sudden he's 29 and he's 2080 in glasses and he's 2040 in contacts or contact lens intolerant. And they sent him for a graft. So the first hurdle we had was getting the gatekeepers to realize this works best when the vision is still good to prevent progression. So as we've educated the gatekeepers, the optometrists are actually sending a lot of cones early on now. I'm seeing the 17-year-olds who are still 20-20 but have a clear cone and you know they're progressing and you know they're going to need a, a graft in 10 years. They're actually sending those in. What I used to say to them was, it's kind of like 50 years ago, they came out with the polio vaccine. Everyone got it. No one felt any different afterwards, but now 50 years later, no one gets polio. So from the keratoconus standpoint, we hope that we can catch these 17-year-olds at the first sign of, of keratoconus, get them treated, and then you don't have to worry about 30 years later, them needing grafts. That's what we're hopeful for. And that's starting. The tougher issue is the more advanced cases. And this, I think, is in the hands of the corneal specialist and less of the uh, optometrist. I found, in my experience, I've had many advanced cones, visions 2070, 2100, you know, at a level where ordinarily you would have been thinking about keratoplasty. But in my experience, as long as they're optically clear and they don't have a central scar, I think they deserve an opportunity for crosslinking. And I've done many of these and a high number of them all of a sudden change from 2100 to 2030. Or maybe they were not contact lens tolerant before, and now they can wear a scleral contact and they get to 2020. I've had a ton of them. In my experience with talking with a lot of the corneal specialists around, a lot of them feel like once they get to that point, they'll go ahead and graft. And the logic may be in my hands, they could still end up 2025, that's a great result. From my perspective, if you're a 23 year old, even if you did a graft and you end up 2020, you're 23, you have a lifetime of wear and tear, you have the risk of trauma, there's a high likelihood you're gonna need a second graft in your life and maybe a third. Based on that, I feel like they deserve the opportunity. Then they also deserve the opportunity of a scleral contact fit. Most patients now with a really good fitter, you can get a contact on, and again, if the, if the cornea is optically clear, you should be able to get good vision. So to me, in almost every cone, unless there's a true congenication, such as scarring, even a thin cone, I think t- if they're at graph level, they deserve the opportunity to as- at least explore the cross-linking because at the end of the day, if it fails, they get the graft anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think they at least deserve the chance to explore the option. Right. If they're already at graph level, exactly. If your alternative is saying we're going to the OR tomorrow, I think they deserve an opportunity. And I think the data will show this. And I have a number of patients already you know, that I've collected that had graph level uh, vision. That we treated and ended up doing very, very well that are driving now and, and um, seeing
0: just fine. So, what about patients with keratoconus and cataracts? So, how do you address those, um, those people? What, what are the challenges that you face there?
1: Well, that's one of the big discussions we have. And in fact, just to give a little plug, this coming uh, April of 2019, our Cedars Aspens organization, along with the Cornea Society and Apex, are holding a conference a freestanding cornea conference called Cornea 360. And it'll take place in um, Tucson, Arizona. And it's the weekend of April 5th. Uh, It's the Thursday to Sunday. And it's gonna be basically cornea. And uh, among the topics are the one that we talked about previously, does every patient with um, keratoconus deserve an opportunity at a graft and a scleral lens before going to keratoplasty? And the other one is, how do you deal with a keratoconus, and cataract. So in my opinion, there's several different variables. Let's obviously assume we're talking about a cornea that's optically clear, because if there's a scar, it's a moot point. You've got to take the cornea off to to do the cataract if you can't see through it. And those are patients that are getting triples. Um, If the cornea is optically clear so that you can do the graft and the cornea is stable, so it's a 70-year-old and you're pretty sure that it's stable, I think it's very reasonable to get the cataract out first, especially if it's a significant cataract the cornea may change for months to years. And if you're going to do cross-linking for the purposes of getting a better cornea, when do you jump in? If you jump in at three months, six months, uh, you're making the patient wait and you may not get to the final target anyhow. So in my experience on those patients, I usually aim for uh, leaving them a little bit. A couple reasons. One is I feel like the IOL calculations tend to be off and they tend to get a hyperopic result to begin with. And number two If they do get cross-linking later, they will also get a hyperopic shift. So I do tend to target a little more myopia. But on those patients in general, I'd probably try the cross-linking first. And oftentimes you're amazed at how much improvement they get with the cataract. And you may not need to do anything with the cross-linking. And if they do start to progress, you can do it. On the other hand, if the cornea is really distorted, it's not unreasonable to do that. If it was a pediatric cataract where they go very, very rapidly and they have keratoconus, in those patients, I would probably want to do the cross first because in a 15-year-old, uh, six months can make a huge difference. So I would want to get the cornea treated. But for the most part, most of these I've been comfortable with doing the, the cataract alone. As far as the use of a toric, you have to understand a couple of things. If the cornea is reasonably regular, I'm very comfortable with using a toric with the understanding to the patient that this may be merely debulking their, their astigmatism without completely correcting it. And I've had a number of patients that have five diopters of astigmatism and you put in a high-level toric lens, and they, they're left with one diopter, but they're thrilled because now their uncorrected visions 2040, where before it was 2400, so they can go around at night without it, and they can wear glasses. They're not dependent on contacts. The big caveat is it's very difficult to get them into a hard contact, which is what they're used to wearing, because of the lens correction on the inside of the eye, so if they were to wear a hard one, it has to be a bactoric, and it's very complex. But they may be able to get away with a soft one. So I think I think all those options are on the table.
0: Yeah, I think that the uh, definition of success is a little bit different in keratoconus patients. I think reducing their astigmatism, as you mentioned, is huge, and uh, you know that that can have a huge impact on patients. But I, I do agree, you have to be careful. You know, if they're Um, If they're used to a hard contact lens, there's still some nuance there. So, you know, proceed with caution. But I think there's a a ton of opportunity to help these patients.
1: It's it's been amazing. It really has been amazing. the, The changes in people's lives, especially these young kids, it's incredible. Ken, that's awesome.
0: I really appreciate all you're doing. Thank you so much for what you're doing to positively affect our patients. And thank you again for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Ken has left us with a lot to think about from the advantages of the epi-on versus epi-off approach to the role optometrists play in referring patients for cross-linking and the importance of educating them on when to refer patients. Thank you to Ken for sharing so much with us about his work in the cornea space. Despite the challenges, his work has no doubt created positive change in the lives of patients. With that, thanks for listening to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Until next time.
1: Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast produced by Brynmark Communications and supported by advertising from Alcon. For a full listing of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to itube.net forward slash podcasts. That's itube, E-Y-E-T-U-B-E dot